If you think like, act like, or are trying to grow like a franchise, then the Franchise Euphoria podcast is for you. Hello and welcome everybody, Josh Brown here, and I created this podcast for one main goal, to help people who are trying to grow their business through franchising or franchise-like structures. I've been practicing law now as a franchise lawyer for many, many years, and I've seen it done the right way and the wrong way. This podcast is not filled with a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo. Rather, I talk with real people, people who have been there, have done it, are doing it right now. And I also dive deep into specific topics related to franchising. So if this is of interest to you, you are at the right place. Hello, everybody. Josh Brown here. Thrilled to be back for another episode of Franchise Euphoria. And particularly excited because today I'm kicking off the first of what I hope to be several mini-series where I dive deeper into a specific aspect of franchising. And for this particular series, it's titled The Enduring Franchise System. And we're going to take a deep dive into what it takes to create a franchise system that not only grows, but lasts. And I've broken this series into really four mini parts. The first one that we're going to kick off today is called Provably Viable, because I believe that for any business to truly succeed in franchising, you must have a provably viable model. Well, what does that mean? Well, today's episode, we're going to kick off with that. And it's not just going to be me here talking. I wanted to bring in other experts uh, and people who have lived and breathed and done these things and created what I would deem to be a provably viable model. And the first guest that we're going to bring on and you're going to hear from is Tom Britt. And Tom is somebody that I've worked with for several years now and has created a franchise system and has really embodied what I believe is the work that goes into creating a system and really focused on the data and analyzing the data and looking at the numbers and making sure that decisions that are being made follow the data and not just follow what the entrepreneur thinks should happen. The reason I wanted to have Tom kick this off uh, is because I think his story is particularly inspiring. And I think he's done a really good job of trying a lot of different things and always following the data to make his next best decision. And for me, in order to get and have and achieve a provably viable franchise system, there's an acronym I like to use. It's called DAMS. And the D is for data. The A is for analysis. The M is for marketability. And the S is for scale. And I believe you really need those four components to ensure that you have a provably viable model. And so Tom's going to kick off the first interview of this part of the miniseries and talk specifically about data and analysis of that data. We're then going to follow it up with what I think is really a fascinating interview with Jamie Isaacs. Jamie has a marketing and PR firm in Chicago that works explicitly with franchise groups and has done a wonderful job of working with a lot of emerging and growth-minded franchisors. So we're going to talk to him about marketability and how you position a franchise uh, for growth. And then last but not least in this series, uh, we're going to be talking to 
Jim Donnelly, who is one of the co-creators of Restore, which is a fantastic franchise model that I worked with from the beginning. And I believe a year or so ago was the fastest growing franchise in the United States, according to Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur and so on and so forth. And he's going to really talk about the scale part and how you scale, but not just scale for growth's sake, but scale in a smart and productive and profitable way. So he's going to round out this first part of the provably viable model to make sure that you're creating an enduring franchise system. Once we go through these episodes, which may be broken into you know one, two, or three different episodes, we're then going to look at the long-term value. You know, how do you create long-term value to make your system long-lasting? And then third, we're going to look at the fantastic franchise selection process. So often in franchising, it's a challenge uh, to know how to find, how to keep, how to attract, sometimes how to turn away uh, prospects that don't fit into your system. So we're going to walk through what I would consider to be a fantastic franchise selection process. And then finally, to finish off the series, we are going to uh, focus on what I would call operational excellence. How do you position yourself for long term growth? What is the detail and the level of detail and the level of systemization that you need to position yourself for operational excellence? So all of that was kind of a mouthful. So let me just recap real fast. First, we're going to focus on number one, getting to a provably viable system. Number two, long-term value. Number three, a fantastic franchise selection process. And number four, achieving operational excellence. And to kick us off here right now with what it really takes to begin to have a provably viable model, hope you enjoy this interview with Tom Bray. So as we're spending all this time talking about provably viable systems and data and all that stuff, I thought it'd be really helpful to bring on and speak with somebody who's got a lot of experience with data and using data to build his franchise. So called my friend, client, known for many years and been through this whole process with him, Tom Britt, to talk about his experience with data, how he uses data, analyzes data, and so forth, and re-recorded an interview uh, with him. He was on the podcast, oh, back in June, I think in 2020, uh, about his franchise, the Town Post Network, and had a great conversation with him for about an hour, all about data, the importance of it. And I think you'll find it really valuable and really good if you're thinking about how you can better use that for your business. So right now we're going to go to that interview and hope you enjoy it. Tom Britt, how the heck are you? Uh, very cold, very miserable after the Super Bowl losses. So you know how that goes. Well, I'm happy for the old man Brady. I know. I'm happy for him. He's just, I'm a Colts fan and he was always the arch enemy for years. And it's just hard to get rid of that picture in your head. You know, I know it is, but he, he's the goat. There's no argument against that. Well, listen, thanks for coming on. You were on a episode back in June talking all about your franchise, uh, the town post network and all the different things going on. And I thought it'd be cool to have you on again because you know, your experience in franchising certainly has been unique to you, but it's not unique for franchising itself. And one of the things that I've noticed uh, in working with you and knowing you over these number of years 
is that you've done a really good job of looking at data, trying to analyze data, always trying to improve upon you know the systems that you have and the structure that you have and the operational foundation uh, right. that you have to grow your franchise. Right. And right. as you know, I'm doing the series on the podcast where I'm really diving into that. You know, I'm 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 diving into what does it look like to build an enduring franchise system, you know, something that can last a long time and to help people who are thinking about making that transition kind of take a look at themselves, you know, and look at the business that they're operating and see some of the holes that are there and what they need to do to plug that so that they can really set things up in a provably viable way, you know, so they have something to offer that's viable for franchisees. And I think your experience is a great example of that. Yeah. And, and you know, you're also a radio legend. I mean, you know, <laughs> back in the day on, you know, popular radio shows. So, so there's that as well. Yeah. Real popular shows. <laughs> I was best known for popping champagne on Friday mornings on a local radio show. So. <laughs> hey, listen, your 15 minutes of fame was like 32 minutes. Yeah, exactly. It went a little longer. But, you know, data data is such a deep, it's a deep dive, right? It's a deep subject and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, my experience, you know, this little background on my experience in data. Um, I had a dot-com startup in the late 90s. I was in a publishing company at the same time and actually had offices across the hall from each other um, with two separate companies, two separate payrolls. It's funny that, you know, five or six years later, actually, I kind of combined the two into the Town Post Network, which is a local community magazine network. But we leverage internet and social and everything else. And so, you know, it's, it's like if my publishing company had a baby with my dot-com, Town Post would be the result of that. And it's, I, I kind of look at data. I was looking at data back in the dot com days, you know, as traffic. And back then, I was talking about hits and impressions and viewers and page views and, and all that real high level um, analytics that came off web servers. But as the analytics have gotten better and better, and AI has been introduced, and it's just, a, it's almost like there's too much data now. What we've tried to do and what I try to do with our business is really just try to focus on the data that's important to us and to try to figure out what are those metrics? What are the, what's the dashboard things that I want to watch to tell me where we need to go next? The analogy I use all the time is when you drive your car, you look at, you know, really two or three gauges at any given time, but that's really all you're looking at. You're looking at your speed. You don't want to go too fast or too slow. Well, you don't want to go too slow to say that. Um, you want to make sure you have enough gas in the tank. So you kind of keep an eye on that. And you're also keeping an eye to make sure no other warning lights are going off or your headlights are off when they're supposed to be, those kinds of things. But you're really just paying attention to the major metrics of that car. And I think a lot of times people get caught up in all the other metrics like wind speed and temperature outside and all those other things. And those, those really don't impact how you drive. <laughs> it's just you need to keep track of the major three. And I think with our business and for any business out there, anybody getting into franchising or maybe has a franchise now, it's just really trying to identify what are those major metrics I keep my eyes on and what are the things that are important to me. And, and they're going to change over time. Um, it may not always be speed. It may be the gas gauge is more important because you're low on gas and you need to focus on that. 
And it's also like, because I agree with all that, but it's also recognizing those things, right? I mean, if you think back to your early days and, you know, back from your dot-com days, flash forward to the franchise days, and you talk about the different data, you know, people don't realize what they're not seeing a lot of times. And, and sometimes they don't know what to look for or what not to look for, because there's this whole idea of a data. Okay, well, what does that, what does that mean? You know, obviously it's, it's per business, but at the end of the day, you know, you're looking for things that can tell you about the health of your business and help you continue down the path that you're trying to go. I, I'd love if you could share a little bit about, you know, when you first realized or what led you to first realize how important it was to really be focusing on the data instead of, you know, just your feelings about the business. Not the feelings aren't important. Yeah. <laughs> What's that show? It's like feelings, feelings. Come on. What about feelings? Yeah. No, I mean, it, exactly. you can't just have a feel for it because that you might be right like you you could be lucky and sort of find some things but if i'm going to bet on a business i want to bet on a business that has real data behind it yeah it, it's funny um and i'll i'll tell you a couple of stories about that and again this is unrehearsed so these are all off the top of my head i don't have any notes or anything for today that's how we like it i know it gets a little more raw that way but I think what was interesting with the analytics and where I first started really looking at data was back in my dot-com days. Back then, there was no Google Analytics. It was web server analytics, AW stats, and some other Linux-coded things you would um, run against your web server data logs, and it would tell you how many people were there, how long they were there, what pages they saw, You know, the basic blocking and tackling of your web traffic. But I think one of the things that, and I would recommend this for any company, is everybody does SEO, everybody's, you know, trying to optimize their site for the best ranking on Google. And there's certain terms they're trying to rank for. And they, they check those terms, you know, religiously to make sure they're always showing up on the first page of Google when you search for something. But what I would challenge people to do and where my eye-opening experience happened is when I looked at the server logs to see what people are searching for and how they're coming in now. Forget about what you're trying to get people to come to your site for, but look at why they're coming to your site now and try to understand what they're searching for that are landing into your site. And what you'll find is going to be maybe scary to you is to what people are searching for and landing on your site. I'll give you an example. I had a client that was um, back in like 2005, 2006. It was actually a state of Indiana. They wanted us to redesign some their website. And I went and pitched them on doing just kind of a deep dive into their analytics and looking at what do they have now uh, what properties do they have? What content was there? How was it organized? But also look at the analytics on what people are coming to their site for now and find out what parts of their site were getting all the traffic and maybe what part of their sites weren't even indexed in Google. We, we didn't know what we didn't know at the time. And what we found was five of their top 15 incoming searches were all porn related. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. For a state website. So you start looking at these terms like, okay, what is on our site that's causing all this? Well, you know, in a state website, they have PDF files and legal documents and things. They had some some files that they had uploaded that were indexed in Google because Google had read the, the text of the Adobe Acrobat file. And they had different sexual terms in them because of affidavits or different things that were posted. And wouldn't you know it, they're showing up. <laughs> they were showing up on the first page of some of these porn site searches for the state of Indiana. So obviously, we had to take those pages down and we started kind of doing a gut check as to what exactly is on the site that's being indexed and what are people searching for that's ending up on our site. So we kind of 
turn those things off. And now Google, um, you know, they've got a lot of Google search tools. Now you can go in and just say, you disallow those backlinks and things to get rid of that stuff. But um, I would just tell anybody, look at your current analytics, look at who's coming to your site now and what they're searching on to come to your site. And that will be your first gut check as to whether they're on the right track or not. Well, I mean, it's so true because the single best way to, you know, attract more business is to go with the people who are already your customers or right. the people who are already interested, right? Right. And everybody focuses on what they want to be found under. And they, you know, put those terms on their pages and their web guy told them that they optimized the page and all that. And so they're focused on the funnel coming in, but people are coming in the back door searching for stuff. You need to know what they're searching for and landing on your site and try to leverage that. I'll give you another example is I did a lot of, so after I sold the, the publishing and the dot-com back in 2000, I just started consulting and I was kind of starting this town post thing on the side as a side hustle, but I was consulting. I was a lead generation expert slash consultant slash guy that could figure things out. And uh, one of my bigger clients was a publishing client and they were spending a lot of money on pay-per-click. Now this is back in 2003, 2004, when Google's pay-per-click wasn't even started yet. It was just getting started. Um, it was onto.com, which was Yahoo's paid search portal and canoodle.com and a lot of these little rogue pay-per-click yeah. players. And when you would search for terms like, you know, they were in the publishing, they were doing self-publishing. So they, you know, self-publishing was really expensive because everybody was bidding on those terms. They were bidding on writing and creative writing and all these different terms. And so what we did on the analytics side is that one of the first things I did, I said, well, can I tie these analytics into customers and sales? In other words, can our sales platform support and, and track back to what they searched on and what they clicked on originally to figure out what they searched on to come in to begin with? And they said, yeah, we, we can do that. So we, the uh, programming guys went in and they could track a customer from the website to the landing page. And when they filled out a landing page, it cookied them to know what that search term was that they searched on originally to fill out that form, which now is easy, right? I mean, with all the stuff we have now with HubSpot and these other platforms. Yeah, it's a lot easier to do. It's a lot easier. Back then, it took a programmer and it took us like, I think, two evenings and a six pack of beer to get them through it. But anyway, we got all that keyed in. We got all that figured out. Well, what we started finding in the data that was coming in was the people who were searching for words like creative writing and writing a book and you know just writing help. Those people never converted to customers. We would sell maybe 1% of those people would actually publish a book with my client. But people who were looking for words like copyright or trademark a book or copyright my novel, those were people that already had a book written. They were just trying to figure out how to copyright it. They didn't know they could self-publish it. They were converting at a 28 to 32% rate if they came in through the website. And guess what? Bidding on a term like copyright my book, nobody was bidding on that. So we were, we were buying these clicks for literally like a nickel or 10 cents a piece and showing up number one on Google and converting a 28 to 32% clip. So guess what? We dumped all these creative writing terms because nobody's, if they're trying to figure out how to write, they haven't written a book yet and they probably can't even write. But if they're looking for a copyright, those folks are the closest to the end game of trying to sell them a book and they converted a much higher rate. So it really revolutionized how they thought about uh, their pay-per-click campaign, their whole online campaign. We started building landing pages about how to copyright your book and trying to get more organic seedings in Google um, and Yahoo at the time. And so 
again, it was just looking at the data. It was looking at what what's the data telling you, not what you want it to tell you, and not the story or the narrative that you want it to say, but what is it saying on its own? And if you just take it for what it is, sometimes it's going to be ugly and it's not what you want to hear. Like, you know, I'm showing up five of the top 15 horn sight terms, but you need to look at that. And, and I just tell people all the time, just look who's already coming in and figure out what got them there and just try to find more people like them. Yeah. And, you know, all of these sites, you know, back in the day when it was Yahoo and then before that, when it was Canoodle or whatever it was, whatever the name of the company is now to, you know, you've got Google uh, as the main search engine and others really, you know, those are just tools and who knows what it's going to be. 15 years from now, right? I mean, you know, these right. things change. I mean, the tools change, but the concept is evergreen and is there. And so I, you know, when I think about data and think about it from a business, it's almost like you're segmenting data into different categories. So like a lot of what you were just talking about seems to me to be about customer data, right? Like who, who are the people that are naturally being attracted to what you're offering versus who are the people you think are being attracted versus who are the people you want to be attracted and what, and what kind of combination is there in? And, and, you know, it's a testing process. It's testing out these theories and seeing, you know, what's being proven right and proven wrong. I'm curious, in addition to, you know, the customer as being sort of one vertical in the data realm, what are some of the other ways in which you've been able to use data to grow your business? Even before we talk about to grow your business, how about to set a foundational structure for your business? Yeah, again, it's a deep pond. Um, there's lots of different ways we use data. When I was when we were looking at uh, just franchising, and we just started franchising in 2016, and when we started to franchise, by the way, it's hard to imagine that's almost five years. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, we started franchising and, and I didn't know anything about franchising. This is a whole new ecosystem for me. I've been in self-employed and in a business for, you know, 30 years up to that. And, and franchising is just a very different model. Now you're, you're recruiting people not to work for you, but you're recruiting people who want to buy in and be a part of your system. And so I felt like, and I still feel like this to this day, that my obligation is to optimize our processes to make them as streamlined as possible, but also set up some data, set up some formulas, set up a dashboard so that I know that if, if somebody buys into our network and they start publishing a magazine in their community or two or three, that we have the analytics and we have the dashboards and we know the numbers to tell them that say, watch these gauges. You want this to be here, you want this to be here, and you want this to be here. And we're watching the gauges too. And by the way, as we're watching these gauges, we're going to tell you what those gauges are telling us or what the data is telling us that might help you steer your business in a better direction. I think one of the hardest things for every franchise is trying to find franchisees. It's trying to find that you know, the avatar of who's a perfect franchisee. And honestly, we don't know that yet. We're still figuring that out. We've got some franchisees who are doing very well in our network and they seem to be unicorns. It's like, how do you find more of these guys? Um, <laughs> then you find other people that come in and do a, a really good job. And there's a lot of more people like them. So you start thinking, well, maybe I need to find more people like them. So I start building this avatar out of a B2B salesperson, blah, blah, blah. We started a campaign on uh, LinkedIn just literally, I think it was like three months ago. And we're starting to do more of a outreach type campaign to try to find those people. And, and as you know, on LinkedIn, it's all sales navigator. You're looking it up by title and terms and backgrounds and those kinds of things. And what I'm finding so far is I'm getting traction with people 
who have experience in, because our business model is basically you, you do print, there's digital and there's social. Most people haven't done all three of those things. Most people have, didn't have a publishing company and a .com across the hall from each other. So you have to find people that have one or two of these legs and we give them all three legs in our stool when we sell them a town post franchise. So what we're finding is people that have that digital background and we find people that have a little bit of print experience or kind of know that are good candidates. And we're finding that through our sales navigator. We can see these people. We, we're getting responses from people who have these kinds of backgrounds and are starting to fill our queue now of people who are interested in buying a franchise. But that evolution of that data set of trying to build that avatar it's taken us literally you know, five years to kind of get to the point where we're starting to now see what that avatar looks like and starting to really target those kinds of people. So, and it's changed too, right, Tom? Like, it does. Like what you thought were going to be these perfect ideal candidates, you know, it's kind of changed a little bit based on, you know, the experience and what you're finding through the data that you're looking at. Right. And the data on the franchising side of things. So when you start looking at, just our business model. I mean, we have everything dialed into a PL by publication and we dial it into knowing like what percentage of your expenses should be postage versus mailing versus your production versus, you know, what your circulation should be and all these different things. And we all boils down to the very bottom of the spreadsheet. It's profit per page and it's net profit profit per page is a number that's kind of innocuous. It doesn't really mean anything. But when you start charting that, you start realizing that, you know, it's one thing to have a, a magazine of 64 pages and you're making a lot of money. And another one's only doing 32 pages, but maybe the 32 page magazine is more profitable per page than the larger magazine because you're charging a higher rate for that. And so we use those numbers and those metrics with our franchisees and coach them on saying, hey, you're not, you know, the numbers are telling us you're not charging enough for your ads or the numbers are telling us that you need to add more pages to your magazine because you have too many ads in your magazine, not enough content to offset that cost. And so those are just different ways in our business that we do that. And again, it's a narrative. Don't look at data as black and white because it, it is black and white, but the narrative that comes out of it can be a coaching moment or can be a way to kind of persuade somebody to maybe do something a little differently and see if that affects the gauges somehow. I mean, when you were thinking through, and I know you spent a good amount of time thinking about this, you know, when you were thinking about, you know, should you franchise, should you not franchise, what kind of gave you the comfort level to finally pull the trigger on it? What were you looking at and what were you thinking that finally gave you the comfort level to say, okay, I, I think based on what I've seen and based on where I think this is going to go, let's move forward with it. Yeah. And it took me, as you know, it took me a while to get to that point. But I think, again, being new to franchising, I wasn't, I just wasn't really comfortable with the model. I didn't really understand it that well. Um, we were in a licensing model, which is basically one step away from being a franchise. And I think for me, it was having the internal systems and processes in place that I felt comfortable enough showing somebody how to do and having some level of comfort knowing that that person would be successful if they use this system. Once I felt like 
we were there. And actually the process of converting to a franchise helped me finalize that journey. If you remember, it took me two years to write the operator's manual <laughs> because once you start writing your operator's manual, you start realizing you're not doing things really the most efficient way. You start writing it out. Going and going, right? Yeah, you start reading it. It's like, man, why am I doing it this way? And there's got to be a better way. And so you you stop and you go figure out a better way and you come back and you simplify that process and you do the next step of it. And so that process of writing the operator's manual and trying to you know write this thing up and document it for someone else to, so they could just read this and have some level of success – after I was done with that, I felt pretty comfortable that this would be a scalable model. And I'll tell you that the scalability is probably the best part of franchising. Um, the ability to turn these things on in different markets with some level of success, that's a huge draw for me. Um, you know, when I started my first magazine 17 years ago, actually 17 years ago next month, I never thought that we would be a franchise. I thought we could grow the business and we could maybe do some more magazines, but I really couldn't see the end game of having a hundred or even a thousand franchises uh, 17 years ago. To me, it was all just about doing two or three magazines. Once I had two or three, I wanted to do five or six. Once I had five or six, I wanted to say, maybe I have to 10, maybe I could do 10. And that's, that's when the light switch went off that maybe franchising was the way to go. And we had the numbers and we had profitability and we had all kinds of different people in our system working in it that made it work. And it, there was profitable. And I thought, other people probably want to do this too. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about franchising is that, you know, all businesses need data and need to look at data. But the thing about franchising that I think is really a little bit different is that, you know, when you turn your business into a franchise, you go from being an entrepreneur who's worried about one or two locations to now worrying about a whole growth structure. Right. And, and you know, we spent a lot of time talking about that and, and the different mindset, you know, that goes into that. But one of the things that you know, I've learned over these last, you know, 15 years or so is that, you know, one of the best attributes of a franchise system that's successful is that after the first year or two, when the franchisee really feels like, you know, he or she understands the system and feels like, okay, I know how to do this now, right? So, you know, I don't need to look at the ops manual every day. I don't need to go refer back to it. And at some point in time, the franchisees are going to say, what's the ongoing value that I'm getting from the franchisor? And if you as a franchisor can answer that question and can clearly show your ongoing value, that is the making of a really, really good franchise system. And if you look at all the really successful franchises, they all do it. I mean, they all do it differently. I mean, you know, you know, mm -hmm. some of them, they, they do it with their brand. They do it with their brand recognition. Others do it with technology. Others do it with a combination of the two. And there's a whole bunch of other, you know, ways in which to do it. But the thing that I've always been struck by is that one of the best ways to do it across the board is to be able to provide your franchisees with information that shows them how they can improve upon what they're doing, where they're doing it. Because they're out there doing it, right? I mean, they're, they're out there making it happen in their markets. Right. And if, if you can be there to help support them, and so often it's the data that helps support them, you know, hey, how's it going? Or why was there a dip? Or we're seeing this on the horizon. And, and, and being able to look at that information and look at it in different geographic markets, to me, is one of the most powerful and important things that a franchisor can do for its franchisees. Yeah. And, and to your point, 
we're probably in the most volatile business being the media space, local community media space, um, because we are impacted by newspapers and television and radio and billboards and outdoor and all this different medias that are out there competing for the same dollars that we are. And throw on top of that digital and Facebook ads and pay-per-click and all these other programs. We see, and I see that our ongoing, not just communication, but education to our franchisees and training them on things and making sure they're positioned for things. And then back officing as much of that as we can so that they're not having to actually do a lot of it, but they're aware of it and they can, you know, help out wherever they can. Um, I'll give you an example. Many franchisees and franchisors out there, they're in industries that have associations. In our industry, there's an association called the American Magazine Association, and they publish white papers and they publish a lot of research that they put out and it's free research for the people in the industry. So I go download it and I read these things and it's just interesting to see how the rest of the world is working in my space. And I I'd recommend that for any franchisee or franchisor is go find that free data out there and just see how they do it. And they'll tell you. And one of the things I saw last year, and it's something we were starting to spend more time on was Instagram as a communication channel for us. Historically, we've been putting everything on our website, everything comes out in our print magazine, we share things on Facebook, but Instagram really wasn't a priority to us up until about a year, year and a half ago. And actually we didn't even support it. We did some for some accounts for some of our franchisees, some of them didn't feel comfortable with it, so we didn't even support it. Well, a year and a half ago, I start thinking, you know, we maybe should give this a little more attention. I downloaded a white paper from the AMA and it said that Instagram usage by other magazines, and these are mostly major magazines or national footprint magazines, but nevertheless, they had a 947% increase in the last five years of users and impressions and reach. And wow. it was eating into their Facebook and Twitter reach. It was actually a little, little under a third of their total social traffic now was coming from Instagram. But what was most important about that, now and that growth is something to take note of, but what was most important about that is they showed what the actual engagements were per their network. And Instagram was 10 times the engagement that they had on Facebook and Twitter. And engagements, just so everybody knows, that that's clicks, people commenting, liking, hearting things, all that. That's engagement. Um, that means that they're an engaged audience. And so I, I saw that and I was like, hold the presses. We've got to get our people, A, on Instagram, but B, we got to get them trained. And so we hired a, an outside consultant. She came in and we did some training. We we set up a training portal, which we did through COVID, which we had to you know do something during COVID to keep our sanity. But we set up <laughs> this training portal to help not only train them on Instagram, but other things in our business as we go along, because we know that training is going to be an integral part of our franchisee development down the road. So Instagram was one of the first things we rolled out. We had a whole curriculum. We did our own internal training. They take a test at the end to get certified. And now our Instagram usage and engagement on our channels across the board. Now, this is only in the last six months, but just across our 18 magazines, um, our Instagram is 400% more followers than what we had six months ago. And that's just by putting a little bit of gasoline on Instagram and getting them trained on it. How have you over the years managed through social media without 
driving yourself crazy in terms of trying to be, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like it, I deal with it in my business and your business. It's like, I think there's this draw that you have to kind of be on all of the platforms and mm-hmm. you, you gotta, oh man, if I'm on Instagram, but what about Twitter? And, you know, and, and they're all kind of a little bit different, right? And people use them for different things and, and, and they all operate differently. So it's like, you have to kind of know what you're doing a little bit on there, but, but how have you kind of you have this background, so it comes mm-hmm. probably a little bit more naturally to you. But how have you used, obviously looking at the data from the magazine, from the free publication, it kind of steered you to Instagram, which which makes a whole lot of sense. But are you a believer that you should be on all the platforms or you think you should find you know one or two of them and just try to hit those pretty hard? I, I would say I'm somewhere in the middle of that. I wouldn't want to be on all of them because they're not all relevant to every business. In our case, we're the news media business, so we technically should be on all of them. But what we've done is we've internally prioritized our social media channels. And by prioritizing, we say, we already know that Facebook is number one. Why? I can go look at my analytics. I can see that Facebook is, in some months, sends us more traffic than Google as far as incoming traffic to our townpost.com website. So Facebook is number one, right behind Facebook, Instagram. Now, Instagram was not even in the top three, number six, maybe 12 months ago. That's been reprioritized. It's now number two. And then number three and a distant number three is Twitter. Twitter is more of the, I call it the flash fire. It's more of a if you're watching a ball game, you want to vent on why the basketball <laughs> player missed a shot and you want your buddies to chime in on it. That's the place to do that. Um, I wouldn't make it a priority for most franchises unless they've got quite the following and they've been pretty engaging on it. We've just found that Twitter, just it takes a lot of time investment, takes a lot of maintenance, a lot of overhead time just to keep up with it. And honestly, people are so short-sighted on that, and it's just so short-fused, it just doesn't really net out that much for you. Now, Facebook and Instagram for us are much more important. Now, number four on our list, and it's our next mission, is Pinterest. Pinterest has redone their whole business uh, suite. Really? Oh, yeah. I haven't heard somebody mention Pinterest in a while. Yeah, I hadn't either. But um, in our research in the last six months or so, we found that Pinterest is really kind of I guess it's not regaining some some momentum, but it's always had this momentum, but they've never really had a good platform for the businesses to really leverage it. And they have built that out now. You can now do, you know, almost like pay-per-click programs through Pinterest. Um, it's really good for visual things. So we're a magazine. We have a lot of, of images of stories and local businesses. And so we're we're starting, we've already got a channel up. We've been populating it but we just haven't moved it to number three yet. Um, we're just trying to get the Instagram thing settled down. And uh, once we feel like we've got our everybody around Instagram, we're going to integrate uh, Pinterest. But what do you use to manage all that? Like, do you have an aggregator? Do you, I mean, I know there's tools out there that can help yeah. you manage. So what are you using? So I use HubSpot and HubSpot CRM. You know, you can go there and get it for free as long as you keep your users under a thousand or so. But They've got like the the marketing module. They've got a sales module. There's some other upgrades for us. So we've got a package now. I think we're paying somewhere around $1,300, $1,400 a month for it. But what that does is it allows us to schedule our Facebook post. It allows you to schedule Twitter post. It allows you to schedule Instagram post. And what that does for us, again, our, our franchisees work in the cloud. So it allows us to schedule these things and they can actually go in. Our franchisees can go in and see on a calendar 
what's coming up to be posted on their social channels so that they don't post it or they know that, you know, tomorrow we got three things going live, one at nine in the morning, one at one, one at five. They might take tomorrow off from posting too much and and load up on Friday or something. So that HubSpot marketing tool has allowed us to really aggregate that and kind of put it into a very easy to use calendar type format. And they're invited too. the franchisees can come in and post through there as well. But HubSpot has its own analytics. It comes in and has a really nice um, analytics dashboard you can click on to see either by feed or by channel or by magazine um, what the engagements are, what their clicks were, what their shares were. It compares to the previous time period so you can kind of see graphing wise um, where things are. And we use that religiously. Uh, we did training about a year, year and a half ago, right before COVID with all of our publishers. We call them publishers or franchisees, but um, we did remote training and then had them come in and did a full day and a half training on HubSpot just to get them up to speed on it. Cause we use it for the CRM side too. They use it for sales. Um, but for the social media, it works just as well. And our whole team chips in on it. So we're all working from the same or singing from the same songbook instead of everybody's doing their own things and you don't know what's being posted. Yeah. You know, there's, there's lots of different CRMs and tools out there, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've noticed in your business, you know, just in talking with you, how, you know, just when you started using HubSpot, and I get, you know, we'll mention them. I don't get anything for mentioning them. I just know a lot of people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I remember back in the day, I mean, years ago when I first learned about it, it was probably 10 years ago, and they've certainly grown a lot since then. But I noticed, um, you know, a, a noticeable change uh, with your business and how you were doing things once you really kind of dedicated yourself to a tool like HubSpot. I mean, do you think that's accurate? I mean, do you think that was a, a seminal point for you? Yeah. And I'll tell you that there's, there's been two cloud-based platforms that we've adopted. One is more of an industry-based platform called MagHub. That really helped us become a franchise, honestly. I mean, it does our billing, it's our production, it's our magazine production invoices, payables, receivables. It, it's a great platform. What HubSpot does, and now HubSpot talks with MagHub, is HubSpot is more of the CRM side that's tied into our website, and it gives us analytics on people coming to our site that maybe aren't clients yet, and we don't have their emails. But once somebody comes in and we get an email through a form on our website, or we've emailed somebody an order or a sales sheet or a promo or something, we can track all that now through HubSpot, and it gives us a lot of intelligence as to what they're clicking on, what they're seeing. If they come to our website, what pages did they go to? It, you know, it's kind of big brother, but it's good information to have, and it's something we didn't have before. So between those two platforms, the MagHub, which is more of the, I would call it the operations side of things, and HubSpot, which is more of the sales CRM side and our social media aggregator, those two platforms work really well together. Now, there's a third platform we've integrated probably in the last, I mean, it was during COVID, so it could have been seven or eight months ago. I don't remember. Yeah. But it's a platform called Databox. Databox.com, it's integrated through HubSpot as well. So that's how I found it because HubSpot has all these integrations and APIs and it was a freebie and I kind of just tried it out. What we've done with Databox, we've actually created these custom reports that are real-time reports that aggregate different aspects of our, our social media and our web traffic, and it puts it into one report so I can tell people with certainty, here's the reach of my magazine in a given month. And we're the first magazine to do this in the country. We're the first magazine to actually aggregate our reach in Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 
our print distribution, our web traffic, all that tied into one pot and then give you a real number that I can definitively show you the analytics on for any given magazine in our network. And we put that on our website at townpost.com forward slash analytics. And we put it out there for the world to see it. So if you want to go see what's the traffic for our Brownsburg magazine, you can go pull that up. If you want to see what kind of digital impressions Geist magazine had in the month of February, you can go pull that up on our website and it's real time. It shows you all the real data that we see. Well, I think what's cool about that is that, you know, obviously that's a great example of data, not only helping your franchisees, but helping the underlying customers, right? I mean, the advertisers, the people going into the magazines, because of course, you know, that shows them their return on investment, you know, and it it does. And and that's, that's been a big issue in our industry. And this may be, um, you know, when you start talking about other franchise systems, how do you disrupt your franchise or how do you disrupt your vertical that you're in? In our situation, we made a conscious effort when we became a franchise because of our platform to be very transparent, not only with our franchisees, so they see all the money coming in, all the money going out, who's been paid what, what the print bill was, what their postage bill, all those things are very transparent with our franchisees. But We also took that same idea and put it into our customers, into our users and the people who actually read our magazines and said, listen, we, we have nothing to hide from you guys. Here's our analytics. Here's how much web traffic we had. And guess what? December was terrible for web traffic. And they go, well, why was that? Well, think about it. People are shopping. People check out. People disconnected for a few days and did a puzzle with their kids for once. I mean, traffic went down. And then when traffic goes back up, we have a different story to tell. Well, traffic is up now because of this, this, and this. And we had a story about this. It went crazy on viral on Instagram and our Facebook page blew up and it got shared 67 times. And that blew up that traffic number too. So what the data does and what we use data for is in an effort to be transparent with everybody we touch from a franchisee all the way down to somebody who's just reading our magazine on the internet and just wants to catch up on what the new brewery is doing down the street. And that mode of transparency is very, very different and really a game changer in our industry. Newspapers, magazines, historically, I mean, good luck trying to get a real reach number from a magazine. When when you go talk to a magazine and you're buying an ad from them and you say, well, what's your reach? And who's this going to? Oh, we reach 50,000 people a month. Do you mean you mail 50,000 copies? No, 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 no. We don't mail 50,000. We mail, you know, maybe five or 6,000, but we put some of them in waiting rooms and 10 people read that one. And then we put some in <laughs> schools you know, we, we dropped some out of a helicopter and 40,000 people on the interstate saw it. So I don't know how they come up with these numbers, but transparency is not the forte of most people in this industry. And that's something that we um, are doing that's very, very different. And actually, we just got an award from Corporate Vision Magazine uh, for 2020. We got the most innovative media franchise of 2020 because of the work we've done with our data analytics on our website and also our online store, which we just launched about a year ago. That's really cool. I mean, knowledge is power. Data is power. It tells you a lot of your successes, but I think most importantly, it tells you a lot of your shortcomings as a business. And if you don't know that specifically, it's really hard to know what you need to change. You're just guessing. You know, you might have had a bad day and maybe you had a pissed off customer or something like that. And so that gets you on this you know, mantra of, oh, we just need to change this because this, and it's like, well, no, maybe that customer just had a bad day. And it it takes sort of the emotion out of decision-making, which I think for 
businesses is a very healthy thing. Like in your case, it highlights, you know, for the underlying, you know, advertiser, the different reasons and high points and low points for the reach. And if it's reaching a whole bunch of people, but there there's not an ongoing interaction, well, maybe that's because it's it's not as good of an ad as it should be. To your point, you know, reach is one thing and everybody talks about reach and that's a big number, but it really comes down to the engagement. I mean, how many calls did I get? How many leads came through the website? How many people did I sell as a result of advertising with you, Tom? And that really comes down to whether they're going to renew or not. So for us, being transparent with them and showing them all these numbers and then be able to articulate to them what these numbers mean and then what we can do is cause and effect to make those numbers go up. You know, I, I liken data again to the car analogy. You know, data is kind of, you know, sitting in the passenger seat. You're driving the car. It's, you're reading the gauges. You're in charge of your business. You have to take it where you need it to go. But your data is sitting in the passenger seat saying, well, you know, if you go that way, it's probably going to be 20 minutes longer. Or, you know, you might want to pay attention to your gas gauge because you're almost out of cash. And we need to get some more money. We need to focus on sales for next month, or we need to do some collection calls because the gas gauge is low. And so that they kind of act as your navigator. You got to listen to the data. And like I told you earlier, the data is not always going to be pretty and it may not always tell you what you want to hear, but you need to take it for what it's telling you and try to make adjustments and try to move in the right direction from there. And I think the biggest mistake that businesses make just in general is they only look at one thing and that's profit and how much money they got in the bank. And yeah, you know, the gas gauge is important. We got to make sure there's always gas in the tank and you've always got reserves for gas, but you also have to be able to remember why you got in the business to begin with and whatever that mission is, whatever it was that made you say, I want to do this. And in my case, I wanted to help my community. I want to do something nice and I wanted to make my community look good to the other residents. The thing that drove me was just getting more magazines out there and getting our message out to more people. And so reach to me is a big deal. How many people we reach a month is very important to what we're doing. And, you know, we, we actually rank our magazines on reach every month and we rank them, uh, you know, one through 18. And it's important to me that my magazines are in the top three or four every month. And I, I work hard at it because it's important to me. Where, where do you think, I mean, you know, data is becoming and has for a long while now. It continues to be easier and easier to get. Mm -hmm. There's tons of platforms, tons of businesses, tons of ways in which people can get it. Where do you think this is all headed over the next couple of years? I mean, it seems to me like there's big value right now in aggregation of data. And I guess to a certain extent, there always has been, but there's just, you know, the companies that can take a whole bunch of data points, a lot of it being digital data points, and aggregating that all together and trying to make sense of it, I think is high value. But where do you see it all going over the next couple of years? Well, I, I think it's going to be more and more important that, first of all, people get data to be just part of their normal business routine, but then they start finding out that they can actually affect the data to be the way they want it by doing things a little bit differently or streamlining things or whatever it might be. In our situation, you know, we're a print magazine, we do digital and we do social. And what I see and what I've been seeing for the last 25 years, that all, you know, it's called convergence. How does this all converge together and what is the end product? And what I'm hoping to do in just in our business uh, niche is I'm hoping that we can integrate the abilities and the technologies of AI into print and actually be able to develop publications down the road 
that would be customized to the end reader. So right now, if you think about a magazine, oh, you, cool. you get a magazine in the mail. Maybe you get our Fisher's magazine here in Indianapolis. That magazine was printed and mailed out to 13,000 people. They were all exactly the same. It just had your name on the front of it. But what happens if we start learning more about you as a reader based upon your address and we can start customizing that publication based upon your demographics or your habits or we find out that you and Becca eat out every night and maybe your magazine's chocked full of advertisements for, you know, Roos Chris and some of these nice restaurants, whereas your neighbor maybe just bought a home to flip and he's interested in home remodeling projects. And so his magazine is full of ads for home services and things. So there's ways we can customize that data and present it out on digital, but I'm looking to do that in print. And if I can marry all that together, I've got a pretty powerful local marketing platform. Not that we don't now, but it could get really powerful because I can just do one-off printing. And the only thing holding us back is the printing cost to do that, um, these one-off publications, but um, it's coming. And that's kind of what we're looking to do. And I think what I would challenge all the franchisees and franchisors out there, anybody who has a business listening to this podcast, I would challenge them to look at not what my short-term plans are, but how can I really change my industry? How could I really make a difference and, and leave a legacy in this niche that I'm in? And whether it's a restaurant or, you know, you're a car dealership or whatever it is, what can you do that's a little bit different to separate you from the herd, but really pioneer something in your space? And that's what I'm trying to do. That's what drives me every day. I, I'm not getting up just to print more magazines. I couldn't even tell you what my print count is right now, but I can tell you what my reach is and I can tell you what we're doing digitally. And I can tell you that uh, we put an Instagram post out last week that just blew up on Instagram and Facebook. And I want to do more of those kinds of things. And so that's what I think has to drive you is not what's going to happen in two or three years with data, but how can I use this data and what's it telling me that could the future be for my whole niche? And how can I pioneer that? How can I make this something that's going to be sustainable for a long time? No, that's great. I think that is um, really insightful and really interesting. How cool would that be if you could target, you know, those magazines? But I think the overall yeah. point is there. Thank you so much, Tom, for, yeah. for coming on and sharing so candidly about all of this and, and all your experiences. And if you want to Learn more about Tom and all the cool stuff he's doing. Go to townpost.com and that's town with an E. So it's T-O-W-N-E post.com, T-O-W-N-E post.com. Thanks, Tom. It's been great to riff with you a little bit and really good stuff. Yeah, I love talking about data. Thanks for having me on. A big thank you to Tom Britt and uh, Town Post Network for sharing all those insights about uh, the importance of data and analyzing that data and reanalyzing that data and really having a focal point on looking at the numbers and the information and all of the data that will tell you about your franchise system or your soon-to-be franchise system. I mean, it's so important that you understand that aspect of what you're doing before you decide and fully commit to the franchising process. I found it particularly interesting uh, to hear Tom you know, talk about the fact that for all these years, you know, dating back to the 90s and the dot-com era and the way in which he was analyzing data at that time, flash forward to now 2021 and you know, going through the same kind of analysis, but just with different and newer technology. But the point being the same, th there's really no substitute 
for looking at data and having a very clear picture of what it is that's working for your business. That way you take out the guesswork. And when you're looking at franchising your business, you've got to take out the guesswork. There are enough unknowns out there that you can't control. So you got to do everything you can to control what you can. Well, the third part of the dams analysis is that marketability piece. And there's a company in Chicago uh, called All Points PR that I've been really, really impressed with, uh, been impressed with the founders and um, have had the opportunity to interview one of them, Jamie Isaacs. So on next week's episode, uh, you're going to hear me chatting with Jamie Isaacs and talking about all of that and much more. Thank you so much for tuning in and look forward to uh, hearing all your thoughts about uh, this mini series and uh, any other episodes that you've enjoyed on Franchise Euphoria. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Franchise Euphoria. If you enjoyed it, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. It really helps to get this show out to more and more people. Also, if you have any questions, have ideas for guests or topics, please email me, josh at IndieFranchiseLaw.com. That's josh at Indie, I-N-D-Y, FranchiseLaw.com. And finally, please note that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes and is not in any way, shape, or form meant to be any kind of legal advice. If you're seeking legal advice, please contact a lawyer. Have a great one. Happy franchising.